I, I think jazz. I mean, to to cut a long story short, really, mm. most of religion is man-made, and literally man-made. Mm. Women had very little to do with it. So this man-made kind of the gargantuan thing that we inherit as religion, we take bits and pieces and argue over it. It's a facade and a veil. It's deception, and it's seeing through that veil of deception that is needed. When the deception is overcome, and you understand what your own life is about, what being a true human being means, self-awareness, and the outcomes that happen because of your actions, the whole problem disappears. There are many people on both sides who do yearn for peace, and they're willing to forgive and start afresh or live together and and have less pain coming along the way with Palestinians and Israelis. Same with the Kashmiris and Hindus. Same with many people in this country at a far, far lesser level, far right and, let's say, black people or Muslim people. My guest this week is Manwar Ali, a former radical jihadist who is now a leading campaigner in Britain against violence and extremism and works with the UK Police and Home Office to prevent radicalisation in young people. While studying in London in the late 1970s, Manwar gradually became radicalised and was involved in radical jihad for 15 years, recruiting others, fundraising and fighting for the cause. He is now one of the only scholars in the UK who has been directly involved in violent jihad and he draws on these experiences to address issues of extremism through education, social projects, charitable events and open discussion. Manwar and his wife came to my house for this conversation, and it was a very emotional one for both Manwar and I, I think. There's something really powerful about owning your mistakes and going through such a huge transition. Manwar is sincere, and I truly believe that anyone listening to this will understand what happened to him and the decisions that he made. Manwar continues to teach Islam, and now encourages anyone drawn to violence to let go of anger and hatred, and instead see the beauty, goodness and truth in others. You're listening to the Worldwide Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people working on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. very very honored to oh, have you on you. the podcast <laughs> honored if laws were different i'd be in prison no but really i watched your ted talk i very much enjoyed it and i thought it was really beautiful actually to see even just reading through some of the comments how much it affected and impacted people that a lot of people took a lot away from your story the worldwide tribe has always been about 
humanity, basic humanity, that underneath all of these things that divide us, nationality, religion, gender, race, we're yeah. all human. And yeah, I think yeah, that that exactly. was a very strong message that came through from your story. I read a, um, a comment. Let me just pour this for you before Thank we you start. And I thought it was really valuable. I'm going to read it, actually, because I wrote it down. It said that it takes a brave man to recognise his mistakes and an even braver one to voice them. Perhaps telling the story of his journey will dissuade a few from following his previous and erroneous path. I had to look up erroneous, by the way, and it means wrong or incorrect. Well, I I know it does, because one guy came to me at um, Wembley Mosque after Friday prayers and actually said said that he watched a TED talk and he said, I've decided not to go to Syria now to fight. Wow. Just one speech he heard, and that's it. Exactly, exactly that. Well, maybe we should start from the beginning and look at some of the circumstances that actually led to your radicalisation. In your TED Talk, you talk about your childhood and you were born in Bangladesh, right? So maybe that's a good place for us to start. Right, so I just talk talk naturally like a conversation, isn't it? Like a conversation. Imagine that the microphones are not there. Yeah, and ask lots of questions. I will. I've got lots of questions. Okay. My name is um, Manwar Ali. I was born in Bangladesh in 1959 um, to a Muslim family. My father was a professor at a university, Dhaka University. He was always intellectual and uh, committed to the party at that time was called the Muslim League, who were responsible for the partition of India into India and Pakistan, British India. So I had that kind of influence on my life of intellectualism plus a kind of Islamic fervor, uh, not only in terms of devotion, because he was a practicing Muslim, but also in terms of politics, that my father sided with the movement that saw a land created for the Muslims of the subcontinent, which on hindsight and with greater knowledge, I I think was a mistake, and uh, I don't agree with it anymore. But I was born there, I grew up there, then a war happened, the war was the independence war, which resulted in Bangladesh. Uh, that was traumatic because all the bad things that go on in, in warfare, expectedly, uh, we never actually expected our own family to be um, directly affected. My elder brother was killed, along with 22 other relatives. One can flesh that out in all sorts of details and get very emotive about it, or emotional. But uh, that might have traumatized me. I didn't feel I was being traumatized. I witnessed all types of horrors, warfare, of course, in, in, from physical combat to um, death and destruction. But uh, given my Islamic uh, upbringing, plus my interest in politics, I, I became pat- patriotic or nationalistic, I think, even at the age of 10 or 11. So when I came to England in 1975, with my, uh, following my father as refugees, I quickly became involved in supporting the Palestinian cause. And I wanted to go and join the PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization, and my mother stopped me from going. And that's another long story of what happened and how I kind of coped with not going and walked about in the streets of London, idealistic and Islamically minded. And you were about 17. I was 17, yeah, because when I came, I was, yeah, I did my GCSEs in my A-level years at, uh, in school in East London, in Stratford. That's it. And since then, nothing much happened until I, I, I passed my A-levels and went to Kingston Polytechnic to uh, do my undergraduate degree in computer science and came across the Islamic Society. 
it's always adventurous and exciting to come in, come in contact with groups of Muslims, young ones, who are enthusiastic about the faith. And unfortunately, I came across a Muslim Brotherhood character uh, who kind of directed me towards uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, their Islamist cause to establish an Islamic state and the various struggles going on in Syria and Egypt. It might be worth giving you guys a little bit of context here. So Manwar refers to the Muslim Brotherhood, which is actually a missionary movement founded in Egypt in 1928, with the idea that an Islamic religious revival would enable the Muslim world to catch up to the West and shake off colonial rule. The Muslim Brotherhood is not a terrorist group and not directly involved in violence. However, over the years, some members of the Brotherhood have broken off to form organisations that do engage in violence. For example, Hamas, the militant Palestinian Islamic movement, which you may have heard of. Other members of the Brotherhood have been frustrated with its non-violence and have quit to form more militant organisations such as Al-Qaeda, which formed in 1988 and later went on to reform as ISIS in 1999. But Manwar is talking about the late 70s here when he was becoming radicalised, so before these two particularly infamous groups existed. I read the magazines and I was fired up by the rhetoric and began to distribute the magazines. So I became Islamically, politically active, even in my student days. And then, in 1979, something happened that triggered Manwar to take things to the next level. The Russians invaded Afghanistan, beginning the devastating nine-year-long Soviet-Afghan war. But then, of course, the Russian invasion happened. I use the word invasion loosely nowadays because I know it was traumatic, it was bad, and a lot of bad things happened. People suffered on both sides. But I was naive, like most of us are sometimes uninformed. So I don't want to be simplistic and talk in black and white terms. But in those days, I saw things in very, very much in black and white terms. So it was the godless Russians coming to oppress the faithful Muslim Afghanis. And so after making contact with the Mujahideen, as they were known at that time, I decided I should go and join the war. The Mujahideen was the name given to the Islamic guerrilla group fighting against the Russians. But the word Mujahideen is actually the plural for Mujahid, which means a person who is taking part in jihad. And I just want to pause here for a second to talk about the meaning of jihad, or holy war. The meaning has been perverted by Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, and our media, actually. But the actual literal meaning is a struggle or effort. And my understanding is that in Islam, it can be used to describe three different types of struggle. So it can refer to a believer's internal struggle to live out the Muslim faith as well as possible, or the struggle to build a good Muslim society, or the struggle to defend Islam. And this is the meaning that we probably relate it to most. And this struggle can be with force if necessary, but the benefit of an act must always outweigh the harm or hardship that it entails. So Manwan now describes his personal jihad as the struggle or effort to reach his own personal potential through positive transformation, learning, wisdom and recognition of God. Manwar explains that true jihad, now he sees it to be about respect, reliability, compassion, truthfulness, love and all of these beautiful human values. But back at that time, Manwar's jihad was not peaceful and took him to fight in Afghanistan. I was also at that time instrumental in getting the Islamic society to function as a, a kind of a deluded leader. Mm. Um, and young ones who knew even less than me followed me 
and thought I was the inspired one, which I never was. And so, unfortunately, I, um, I ended up going to Afghanistan. It was a long process. It wasn't as easy as today as things are today to just hop on a plane and go. Uh, I had to um, make the right contacts, be vetted, given a letter of uh, recommendation. Manuel went to Afghanistan with people from all over the world. Belgium, Holland, somebody came from Germany, from Saudi Arabia. There were meetings at my mother's place. And finally went to Peshawar in Pakistan uh, to the camp with the letter of approval. And that's how the whole journey began. Did you know what you were going there to be doing? Yes, uh, yes. um, Sometimes it's hard for me to recall the exact feelings and and exact kind of like uh, the sensations I had because I'm trying to forget those things Mm -hmm. and I've changed and moved on rather and hopefully become more sensible. Um, But uh, on on kind of on, on the basis of information, yes, it was purely to seek martyrdom. Islam as a religion has certain hooks and parameters which can make the prospect of dying in a in glorious term, you know, mm-hmm. more amenable, you know, more kind of easy. Not simply to go and die for God in battle, but also at the same time be supportive of the whom I perceive to be the victims, the Afghanis. And I heard all the horror stories about the Russian soldiers, what they were doing to the mm-hmm. common people. So I thought if I go to Afghanistan and I'm physically able, I'm, I'm mentally able, my parents are supportive, it's an Islamic thing to do, to fight for, for the sake of Allah, we say God. There are many the encouragements in Islam as a religion to die for the truth and for justice. So with those kind of chivalrous kind of uh, motives or qualities, I suppose, but of course mixed up and uh, mistaken with politics and ill understanding of current affairs, I went um, for the sake of God to fight for oppressed Muslims to establish an Islamic state. I, I, would, I thought I was on the right side because I'm with the Muslims, but mm-hmm. also I was driven by the fact that these were not just Muslims, nationalistic ones, but they were also trying to establish God's law, the Sharia law. So it was motivated in an Islamist fashion as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really important important point to just bring home that this all happened when you were living in East London, right? And you were studying in the UK and you were living in the yes, UK. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I was, I was studying, I was at, um, well, I was at, at that time, at, uh, just, just about, it's 1979 or 80, so I was at Kingston Poly, I just graduated, I think, and I was married. So as a young person, newly married, with a job at British Telecom, I was quite well off, well educated. I was not bragging about myself, Mm -hmm. but uh, I had a degree and a a, a master's degree as well by that time. And married with children and um, I went off despite a semi-middle class kind of earning. So you had children already at that point? Yes, yes, I did, yeah. And um, yeah. And uh, it must be difficult to cast your mind back because I think that anybody listening to this over the courses of our lives we change a lot right and as we grow and age and we learn you're kind of going back to a time when you were young and 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 different from now right yeah we I think not all of us were that young I think the 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 problem is sometimes 
we underestimate the, the power of ideology because the Islamist, uh, political Islam ideology is so intimately woven with the Islam as religion, it's very hard to separate the two and say, well, this is politics and that's worship. Mm-hmm. This is about God stuff and that's about secular, mundane stuff. It doesn't work like that. And so when we are religiously justifying using scripture, what could have very well have been otherwise just secular ambitions or designs, then it's very dangerous that that ideology becomes much more dangerous than just a philosophy. Mm. And I think that's what happened to me. So I can't excuse myself as saying I was young or naive or, you know, or ill-tutored even because... I was surrounded by scholars, imams, um, and my father coming from a political background, uh, being a professor and all that, uh, also had many of his colleagues who were equally grounded in, in the kind of ways of the world and, and social affairs. So I was in contact with them. They're visiting our houses. We had army colonels coming to our houses, majors plotting coups to um, you know, people talking about how they could perhaps launch some guerrilla war. I'm exposed to all this, and I'm self-learning. I have the imams around us not being able to guide me or to teach me how to behave better or know better, and everything somehow came together. I ended up, for the right reasons perhaps, but doing things in a deluded, uh, mistaken way, and, and that was entirely harmful. Do you, did, do you feel that when you came to the UK as a teenager from a very different culture and a very different country, that feeling different and feeling kind of, were you, did you feel accepted into London and the community there or did you feel kind of isolated and did that impact your trajectory? Uh, That is a very relevant question because what really puzzled many of us, I mean me, my colleagues, those from my generation, is the fact that none of us that I knew who who embarked on jihadist activism, as we call it today, ever bore any ill intention or bad feelings towards our country or the people. Mm -hmm. We were welcomed, we were grateful, we felt privileged, and we were thankful that the British government uh, benefited us. We had a sense of belonging, and we were British. So the ideology is the problem. So no, I was welcomed. My sixth form tutor, I owe a debt of gratitude to him. I get emotional because I was, I was here when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I went to school. We drank free milk. When I grow old, I have a heart operation. And I take eight units of blood from the British public. They pay their taxes and they give me benefits. My mother earned benefits from the non-Muslims' taxpayers' money. We were loyal to Britain, but somehow made perverse because of ideology. is you have to uh, try and forget and suppress the awful injustice that's entailed when you ignore your primary responsibility and loves 
your wife, your children, your neighbors, and the people who granted you so much in your own country to, to help you grow up. So the first thing we suppress and try and forget, not think about it on a daily basis, is the awful injustice involved in the idealism we followed with the excuses we make today of, well, I try to support the brick victims or to help against oppression. They sound, they sound good. But if we try and boil it down to essences of what really happened, it was a severe miscalculation of how to be a human being. I, I believe it's the ideology, it's the misunderstanding of religion, how it is not properly uh, studied or taught, coupled with the fact that there are grievances, there are genuine uh, grievances, there are injustices in the world, frustrations with trying to obtain justice. And as human beings, we react to well, news of bad things happening. You know, whether you're a Muslim or a non-Muslim, if you see someone suffering, even animals suffering, you take pity at the very least, mm -hmm. if not try to be kind and helpful. So those kind of emotions come into play with the bad religion, the politics, the, you know, the, 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 the I don't know, propaganda. There are real casualties. You know, not mental ones, physical people die in these causes. There will always be human suffering and there has to be ways and means of, even through prolonged suffering, to bring matters to a resolution or to alleviate the suffering, even though we might not get the full solution. But sometimes the paths that we take because of ideology and religious fervor actually makes matters worse and creates more heartaches and deprivations. And then the victory we get at the end of it, you might say, well, it's worth it, and generations on people will not remember all the pain and the blood that was shed. But as an individual, in your conscience, you have to struggle with it until you can think no more. And as a faithful person, you will be aware of your accountability in something that we talk about in the sense of a day of judgment or God or hell or heaven. So you feel regretful and you feel sometimes the best way is to look forward, do positive things, be cheerful, give time to your family and not talk about these things. So on the face of it, you're a happy man. People are looking at you, joking, laughing, mucking about and normal. You do interviews and you're a soppy old git. I appreciate you so much for sharing this it's so important because I think anybody can relate to you on a human level and your experience that you're sharing here. And on the surface, maybe, you know, they would hear your story and say that they wouldn't. But actually, I believe that anyone in your situation surrounded by those people and influences with your circumstances and experiences as a child, this would have followed the same path. Thank you. I'd love to, if it's okay with you, talk a little bit about the time that you were in Afghanistan and the time, I think it was 15 years, right, that you were... Yes, uh, thank you, Jazza. 15 years I was involved in, in, in jihadism, trying to go back to the original, the authentic, the, the pure. 
And that still drives a lot of people today. They are fed up of the accretions that have happened across time in, in religion. So they see political problems, they see the weakness of the Muslims, and, and they want to bring about the ascendancy of Islam or the supremacy. And they say, well, we can gain that by pleasing God and having his blessings. And that would be if we were like the companions or the disciples were like. And then all the trouble starts because we are interpreting forever, interpreting and then arguing and rivaling. To create an exclusivism for ourselves is a type of arrogance and a big-headedness which we can do well without. And a lot of self-righteousness was there. So with that kind of framework in mind, Islamist, jihadist, jihad being the type of tool, if you like, activism. I went to Afghanistan. So what did I see there? Of course, you see the natural stuff that you would expect to see in, in any kind of warfare. It wasn't intense all the time. Most of the time is boring, as anybody would tell you who have been to such fronts. You spend a lot of time waiting and doing nothing and, and, and just playing, even having snow fights or whatever you do, you know, amusing each other or just showing off with your guns. You know, we used to buy ammunition for fun because we could afford it, being from Britain, and just shoot in the air or empty targets. But besides those kind of horse playing, um, there would be moments of action, shelling, counter-shelling, rocketing to close combat. I didn't see close combat, but I took part in fighting, you know, just combat, let's say. But when I say 15 years, it's like on and off because I had a full-time job. I supported my family um, with the job. I was a problem at work, meaning I wasn't, of course, performing well. I just barely hung on to the job. They couldn't sack me for reasons that people can't sack you for. It's difficult to sack you just like that. So I was performing enough not to get sacked, yet not performing, and it was shameful and getting paid, and that's how I was sustaining my family. And you so would, would go for trips I would regularly. go for trips, yeah. Short times, week, two weeks max or less, even for three, four days. Every weekend I'd be away for 15, 20 years. I went across, up and down the country, Rotherham, Skipton, Bradford, Burnley, all those places, because mosques are there, mm. pre-lecturing in mosques, clubs, youth clubs and mm-hmm. so on, um, parks, taxi stands, Wherever I could find young people and talk to them, I became popular. A lot of youth gravitated around me. And I enthused them and I showed them the ropes. And I would write them, in turn, letters of introduction. Okay. You know, even Zakarias Musawi, the one languishing in prison for being the 20th bomber in 9-11. Ah. He used to come to my talks. I met him at Parsons Green many times. He's been to my house so I used to go and come back, take part in fighting, retrain, and then tell the brothers, brothers and sisters, uh, people I used to deal with, you yeah, go, and if you want to go, I can facilitate. So I was a facilitator, okay. a recruiter, and somebody who could, uh, who, whom the others on the ground trusted. I, I'm a key player. I created the, the link, and I throw this speech. I'm good at making speeches. I used to be anyway. I can and tell. <laughs> and so people are pouring money. At my conference, I'm giving this rousing speech, giving the, and people are telling their sob stories. And I, it's propaganda rhetoric. It's not un, untruth. But propaganda is that, isn't it? Mm. You hide something. So I'm speaking the truth of Rohingya suffering or Indian oppression or Israeli atrocities. But it's one-sided. It's tunnel thing, isn't it? Yeah. People's emotions are high. And women are taking off their gold rings, bangles, earrings. 
And giving it for what? To fight. And fight whom? We would raise 100, 150,000 pounds. One, one, one meeting, it was half an hour, I raised 50,000. And the money that you gave, you, you take off your chain and you give it to me for fighting for sake of God. Got lots of rings. Yeah, <laughs> give me the rings. I take that money. Then I come back and tell you, so what was your achievement? I said, oh, well, uh, well, we have rivals. We fought against them and we killed two of the two teenagers. How would you feel? But you will still continue to give me the money because of how I do propaganda and hide the reality mm. and the rhetoric of Islam. So you can applaud the generosity. Wow, Muslims are charitable. They want to help the oppressed. They are moved. They're giving, donating. And if you just paint that, it's a nice picture to paint about the Muslim community. Mm-hmm. So what does that make me? A religious leader, a pious man, a righteous person, a good man, good, decent man, or a cheat? The worst of the kind. And that's what happens. Muslim Brotherhood... These personalities inspire. They come and talk about the real stuff. We have poverty, we have occupation, we, we have, have oppressed corruption, people. Yeah, mm-hmm. oppressed people, or corruption, that girl got getting pregnant, or because the society is corrupt, or mm-hmm. whatever, we don't have Islamic standards, you know, wear the scarf and everything will be hunky-dory. You know, that kind of, you know, it's pathetic, really. So you have some, sometimes this kind of pathetic simplifying off by talking about the issues, and that grabs people. Oh yeah, we would like to see more Islam. So more girls in hijab means more Islam. Yeah, yeah, let's have hijab, make mm-hmm. it an issue. So the scarf becomes, a piece of cloth becomes like the be-all and end-all for everything for someone. And I think it's absolutely important to understand that Muslims, when they have issues and grievances, are suffering from a lack of correct or inspiring leadership. Mm-hmm. Except that the vacuum is filled by certain self-elected and inspirational, perhaps charismatic preachers and free people. That's in me. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a small minion, a tiddly thing. But still. But for many people. But to many people, yes. Yeah. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is a king, isn't it? So in this country, there was like two, three thousand people will turn up to my conference. Three, four thousand yeah. conference, young people. Yeah, so he's a big gangster leader, basically. And not educated, really, in that sense. Not inspired, inspired anyone. But the power of influence, the hope... You know, and people see, at least this guy is active, he means, puts them, his money where yeah. his mouth is, kind of thing. But it's all due to lack of knowledge and leadership. We went back to talking about Manwa's time in Afghanistan. So uh, I did that. So the experience was good and bad. The, the good, by the good, I mean, he will see the brotherhood, the sacrifices young people make, their sincerity, how hard they work, and they are so... Innocent in the sense that they just want to be helpful. They're misled by the older people. Mm. And so I carry a bit of anger or hate, I suppose, for these, the, the Muslim jihadist leaders. I don't want to hate. I, I, I think I've lost the capability to hate people. But there are moments when I feel deep anger and I feel, you know, and I just feel no respect rather, not hate, no respect or, or reverence for these sheikhs and leaders. In fact, the leaders, I think they're the worst of the people on earth, the, the Muslim jihadist leaders. So a lot of young people, I, I have good memories of that, the brotherhood, how we shared meals to praying and playing games. And some of them died, of course. They, they, they fought sincerely, 18, 19-year-olds. Yeah. 
Uh, so that I saw, uh, and and that and the reason, the main reason I left was not because I had learned Islam better. My conscience was telling me other things. I would quickly overcome them by justifying it with the so-called greater good or greater cause, and one day victory will come, and you're on the right side because, after all, you're fighting for God, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Kind of arguments. They're all false. They're entirely false. Yeah. So I, the main reason I left was because of my conscience, because Muslims fought Muslims. So I actually switched from Afghanistan to Kashmir because I said, well, in Afghanistan, we came because we fought against clear-cut enemies, non-Muslims, Russians. And not mm-hmm. just Russians, they're actually communists, so they're godless. I'm not even fighting Christians, I'm fighting godless people. False. And in fact, most of the people I fought, I know for a fact... The people we tried to kill were Muslims. They were either Russian conscripts who are from Central Asia, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Kyrgyz, I mean, they are Muslims, or Afghanis themselves. All I know as a human being, on ethical grounds, you are fighting your own kind when there were real problems, and I was not interested in solving the problems but to impose an ideology and dreaming as if that ideology will bring about by magic the solution. Mm -hmm. That's what Islamism does. They they haven't got a clue of how to run even a village, but they they, they think they can run a country, you know. They don't have the necessary personnel. I mean, even you have to have the doctors, the engineers, and they don't even have those. And those who are on the way give up halfway through the education to fight for the cause of God or whatnot. Mm. And it's ridiculous. So I switched from Afghanistan to Kashmir because, again, clear-cut enemy, Hindus. Again, that's not true. It's false. And then I go over and I find that, actually, the Muslims are going to fight against Muslims. And the same thing started. Many of them are Sunni, Hanafi, Diobandi. These are like terminology they use mm-hmm. for our own denominational differences. But, you know, why am I with this group and not that group? And s- suddenly it kicked in. I am there to fight against non-Muslims because they're oppressing Muslims. You know, it, it doesn't make sense. And what type of piety or godliness is that? And what sort of God are you worshipping who actually wants your success through shedding people's blood your own brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. So, let alone concern for shedding human blood, it, it was you are actually fighting mostly against your own kind. Mm. Then you see the deaths, the destructions, the corruption. There's a lot of internal politics. Yeah, jealousy, basically. envy, claims, and, and, and there's and money. need for power, I guess, power, in a lot of individuals. Lust for power, ego, of course, mm-hmm. and money is involved. If I set up two roadblocks and I take money from passers-by. You can't pass unless you pay tax. So who owns the roadblock is important, although we're fighting the same cause. But that group is getting away with having 10 roadblocks, whereas I fought in the same battle, I only got one. So I'm, I'm not getting the money. If I don't have the money, I can't buy the weapons or pay my troops. Why do I have to be involved in that? This is not far from helping the oppressed mm-hmm. or fighting against the oppressors. I see. So that's a real incentive for people to become those leaders it's ego it's power it's money it's 
So when you started to see this corruption within what you were doing and things like the roadblocks as a great example, during that time, that period of 15 years, did you have doubts within your own mind or did you not allow for those to creep in? In the beginning, you don't. You always have doubts. There are always reasons to doubt anything of this type that mm. we get involved in. It's bound to happen. But you justify, you excuse. You have to. I should have left much, much longer ago. Mm-hmm. Something external has to happen. A little bit of push or fear needs to be injected. And I think that's very important to note that governments and authorities have a responsibility not simply to dissuade people and create the conditions for people not to become radicalized, but better job prospects or housing or whatever you might have. But on top of that, sometimes you do have to make robust laws and, and declare some things are illegal. Yes. So when Terrorism Law 2000 was enacted, given all that I had experienced, the doubts, the equivocations, and you know, kind of feeling of badness and whatnot, I held a meeting with one of the lawyers. So six, seven of us got together with the lawyer and said, can we be prosecuted in retrospect because of what you have been doing openly? Raising funds, going, training, all that. And up until that point, in 2000, nothing that you were doing was illegal? No, it wasn't. And that's why it didn't help. If it was, then I would have been more careful. I would have thought... So when Terrorism Law 2000 came, given that I have already mellowed and have all these doubts and yeah. bad experiences, that was the catalyst. He said, well, I'm afraid if I do now, and I do get, if I do get caught, so much to lose. So in a way, that push was needed. right. So, so, the so you actually needed the external law to tell you yes, this is yes. not right. And I think that those laws should be more tightened, made more careful. So that's really interesting to me because I think for the average person, they would assume that what you were doing pre-2000 was illegal mm. at the time. Yeah. But actually fighting for a cause that you believed in, unless you were actively making illegal acts, which you weren't, right? No, no I wasn't. I see. No, 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 nothing was illegal. Mm -hmm. So was it possible for you to be prosecuted retrospectively? No, no. Right. It wasn't. And I was changing by the time anyways, giving up. And I was put under surveillance. So you've never been to prison or... No. No, only now I I go to visit Mm -hmm. people who are in prison to speak sense to them. But I would imagine that in other ways you have paid the price for what you no I haven't I think partially years, right? yeah, that's part of the problem maybe why I feel that I have not been punished and maybe that's why I beat myself up so much but isn't that punishing yourself yeah but I, I think it's easy if, if I had gone to jail and if people had put me I, it's easy to say of course I'm happy fortunate lucky I don't know what the words are to be free to grow into a better human being you know I feel grateful and, and, and so thankful to the I appreciate the people around me that they don't trouble me for my past they've accepted my change mm-hmm. let me and, and I'm doing positive work you know nothing is perfect but I'm doing positive work but I have regrets I try to make it up through well it's a type of penance but it might have been easier if I was put in prison for 10 years or 5 years or paid or executed or something because then yeah I deserve it but I didn't do anything illegal I didn't break any law but morally, ethically, it was wrong because that was not the religious way of going about it. You know, it's wrong because I, I know Islam does not teach what I did, although I used Islam. 
I purely used Quran, the our holy mm-hmm. book, and I still do. So it's the same material, but my understanding, the horizons are broadened, it's deepened insights, and I've understood better the nature of law, Sharia law, and all that. So what I say to the people I talk to in my interventions sometimes, whether they are criminals in prison or on probation, or we are trying to talk them out of becoming criminals, I tell them, look, in the end, I've done far worse than you have. I'm not here to judge you. You might be in prison or you might not be in prison, but I know I should have been. But my only thing, my only redeeming factor, I think, is my sincerity. I was sincere. So I think you are sincere, but you're mistaken. And listen to my words, listen to my explanations and, and reasoning, and it's up to you. Take it or leave it. That is the nature of my intervention work. I say, may God forgive me, of course. May God guide and forgive everyone. I rely on his mercy, so I have to be merciful myself. But uh, I haven't, I've not been merciful. People died. This reminds me of one of the other messages that I read underneath your TED Talk that said, I'm glad he isn't resting on the laurels of repentance and he's actively trying to prevent the same fate for others and ones who have suffered at the hands of the angry hate and the ones who are contemplating the same path that he took. This story should be included in school syllabi to increase awareness. And I thought that was really beautiful and I'd love to talk a little bit about your work now and what you do. Yes, I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, that, 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 these, these are the things that humbles you more. Because by nature, people are good. And people should be able to see goodness and ideology and cause and perhaps radicalizing factors, maybe trauma, maybe vulnerability because of domestic situation, unhappy experiences. They, they pervert your humanity. And I, I like to hear that, it's good. But it's humbling, because it brings home more the point of how awfully wrong you were. What are some of the, I know this is a big question, but maybe you could just touch on what some of the factors are that are leading to radicalisation in the UK and what could potentially be done to reduce this? And some other factors, I think, are common sense factors, which obvious things to state. And can, we can always jump up and say the internet. Mm. It, it, it plays a huge role because people do do online surfing and they come across, we would say, radical preachers or hate preachers. The second problem I face is the ideology itself. You'll never get rid of wars or poverty mm. or discrimination. You can reduce it. You can try and ignore some of it. Some of it you accept as part of life that you will never be equal in, in the complete absolute sense. We ourselves don't often check how, how far we discriminate and have prejudice as well. All of us have some degree of prejudice. It comes out accidentally and then we realise when reminded. So we need to be realistic. I think so the second problem is that, that the, the ideology feeds on grievances, genuine perhaps, frustrations, anger, sorrow, hopelessness, some caused by political goings-on in far-flung countries, British Muslims sitting and witnessing on learning about Assad's tyranny on the people. You wouldn't like it. Then you're given graphic details, you mm-hmm. hate it. Then you're told about the physical outcome of now what's going on. Then you want to blame and you want to be, be part of the solution. So then, as a human being, you react, but then comes this, the ideology. So part of it has to do with 
bringing about realism. I think we don't cultivate enough sense of realism, whether it's in the sense I spoke about, um, well, how are you going to take on such a big army when you're not prepared to even you know, withstand a, a backlash, a momentary backlash? So realism. I think we don't have enough sense of realism. So young people, well-hearted, they want to help, and uh, they like the glamour. Syria was very much the glamour. It wasn't just simply, you know, oh, fight Assad and help Muslims get victory. It's a boyish thing. Oh, we can have the latest weaponry, guns, and the, you know, the, oh, we can relax on the rooftop on a, on a swimming pool. Mm. You can have Coke and Kentucky Fried Chicken or Kit Kat. And of course, girls. And respect, right? Respect and power. Kudos, mm. respect. It happened in the 90s and 20s as well. Girls coming to me and saying, I want to marry a brother who's a fighter. I want to be married to a mujahid or be a wife of a shaheed, you know, a martyr. A martyr. It happened then, it happens now, it happens even more, it's easier. So the realism is not built. We don't acknowledge the problems sufficiently. We allow extremists to take over. So radicalism happens. And in my work so far to date, so many young people have turned back from pursuing a problematic path, maybe down, ending up in wow. criminality, because they had a football club to join or a boxing club or found friends. So you need an alternative to fill that, yeah. that hole as young well. Young people, especially 17, 18-year-olds, maybe a 25-year-old is a different case. But young people, yeah, provide their meaning, purpose, a job prospect, prospect, retraining, you know read more books or just alternatives in sense of well you want to be charitable but you can do charity in five different ways to this one particular person you don't you simply have to buy him a meal he's full he doesn't want food spend some time with him yeah. listen to or him or just sit yeah. in silence with him hold his hand or put your mm. arms around him so I, I try to now reach out to people the last 10 years I've been trying to organise on community and conversations in my area, I just randomly ask people to come together and talk about difficult subjects, but create an environment. So quiz, food, a bit of entertainment or music, yeah. and light-heartedness, but very difficult subjects, you know, Islamism, terrorism, death, racism, whatever you like. Open conversations, not, and I have a panel of speakers as well, or some so-called experts, but everybody can input. So people can pour their hearts out and swear if they like and raise their voice if they like, get angry. And it almost never happened that way. So the opportunity is created. People come together. And it grew from 27 people, the first meeting, to 350 people. Wow. So you really created a community and a safe space yeah, for people. Yeah, Muslims, non-Muslims, men, women. I bought a disused church. And our dream was to re-establish the church as a community centre for everyone. So it was just a place you come and just mingle. That's, that's all it was. And then I started doing what, uh, much before that, about 20 years back, I pioneered zakat, which you might know is a pillar of Islam. Mm -hmm. So we donate 2.5% of our annual savings above a certain limit for mm -hmm. deserving poor people. But I pioneered that to be solely for Britain, and the controversial thing that I did was not that it's just for Britain, but it's meant for people, regardless of religion. That meant I could help a lot of non-Muslims. I ended up helping needy non-Muslims more than Muslims wow. using zakat funds. Regardless of their political background, I don't care far right, far left, black, white, brown, blue, I mean, it's just people. And during, while doing that, I also made contact with the English Defence League, the EDL. Wow. So I had a meeting with three, four of them 
I'm saying, you know, come, I want to just understand why don't you like Muslims or what are your gripes? And then it transpired that we, we can agree on certain observations or issues and then talk about, well, we can handle it differently, can't we? Then I opened a shop, a, a cafe, internet cafe, to, for the same purpose, for conversation. So we can have discussion, I'll sit there and talk to people and discuss religion and so on. But then employ people to break the mold. So I did two things, which is kind of like abnormal, I think. I was one of the first people there in Ipswich as a Muslim, and the mosques know me. I'm a leader, a preacher in there. I employed a lesbian girl. She wow. came along. Another boy came along with tattoos and everything and whatnot. I said, you got the job. And they were like, what's <laughs> going on? I said, no, you have the qualification. I'm, I don't want to judge as long as you want to work and put in the hours and do a good job, you're there. So all sorts of people began to come, you know, from punk rock type people to lesbians and gays. And people what also, a transition, because I just um, oh. want to understand what that was like for your wife and your children, your community, really? who had known you in one way all, for all these years and suddenly... Yeah, yeah, I know. That's why I get emotional, because I oppressed them. Repressed, oppressed, and God knows how my, what my wife went through, how she felt, coped. <laughs> So they were ready for this. Yeah. I mean, that's the hypocrisy of it as well. You know, I go off to fight for other people. So you can say good intention. But why am I going off to foreign lands to fight for other people? And who am I leaving my wife with her 12 kids to? You have 12 kids? Yeah, 12. Wow. I'm one of eight. I thought that was a lot. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so anyway, so that was the one thing I did. And the other thing I did, I took up knitting classes. I went Amazing. and joined a group of women, elderly women. I was the only man there, a Muslim with a beard, and learned how to knit. So I made changes, and I made friends with all sorts of people. So the Quaker community, the churches, the gay and lesbian community, people, everybody came, the, the Afro-Caribbean community. I formed uh, the, the Turkish group. Then the Kurdish came along, and it was like a wonderful party atmosphere. Wow, sounds great. Yeah, but I'm still a Muslim. By essence, I said, I don't want to torture or harm people. Mm. I'll pray for the Uyghur Muslims in China, yet I will not sign anything against the Chinese government. I'm going to get involved in politics. So that's what's changed. That's what's changed. You still support those oppressed and pray for them. Obviously, as a human being. Yeah, but actually taking action when it comes to anything. This is the politics. I don't want to get into Mm. this. I see a lot of politics. Maybe driven by other interests. I don't understand. I never understood then. I shouldn't pretend to. I know more now because I just read more books. It doesn't make me an expert. So that puts people off. So they think, why aren't you taking a stance for the Palestinians or the Chinese Muslims or even Rohingya? I, uh, I understand. And maybe this is a difficult question, but for the work that you're doing now and this transition that you've been through, are you, does that put you in any danger with any of these groups? It does, but I have to be glib about it and callous, I suppose. I don't care. Uh, I do care for my family and neighbours. So I had installed a, a panic alarm. The police came in and, and installed that. I know my house is marked, so if there is a 999 call, I'm supposed to get more of a rapid response than others. And, of course, the, the work that I do, I have uh, security risk, whatever, risk analysis and stuff done by the police. I've, I'm given protection by other people. I've had one or two threats, you know, direct threats and encounters when I had to leave quickly and so on. But I still sleep with a knife in my, in, in the, um, under, under my pillow. I'm, I'm, I will never use it, you know, I'm, but if an attack happens, if I'm killed, well, I, I'll, I'll probably, I hope, inshallah, God willing, I'll die a martyr now being killed for what I'm doing than have, then 
having been killed doing what I was doing. Mm. So if not today somebody shoots me, shoots me dead, you know, okay, you've got to die. Everybody has to die, isn't it? So I'll die because they hate me for doing prevent work or talking against Islamists. Fine. If ISIS kills me, then I'll die a shaheed, oh, sorry, a martyr. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a problem with that. So, no. There is some, yeah, internet stuff and Twitter, whatever they do, try and follow and harass you yeah. and block them. But you have to sometimes, as you know, you yeah. have to make sacrifices for what you believe in. And this is now yeah. what you believe in, right? Humanity and, yeah. And, yeah. and supporting one yeah. another. With conviction in Islam. It mm. is the Islamic thing I'm doing. What about your... So you have 12 children. Do they all support your views? Have they always followed? No, they're um, all independent. I mean, I've grown out of trying to control them. I'm part of parenthood, as you you must know. I don't know if you have children or not. Not yet, no. but okay. I, as I say, I'm the oldest of eight, and yeah. three of my little brothers yeah. are Muslim. I have one Afghan brother, one right. Sudanese brother, right, and yes. one Libyan brother. Mashallah. And then my Eritrean brother grew yeah. up very traditionally Christian. Yeah. So we have a Mashallah. multitude of beliefs, and everybody doesn't necessarily agree with yes. what each other believe well, that, but we yeah, yeah. support and respect each other and we understand exactly. each other well that's pretty much how it is like for me that's how I've grown into it I, I was going to say you, might, you must have noticed from your parents how we all learn as human beings and get better at how we deal with our children or look after them we love them all but sometimes the love is not expressed in the proper way so how I treated my elder children was perhaps not as good as I could have done but the younger ones have a far better experience, and the youngest ones, of course, the best. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's how well, it is. I was the oldest. <laughs> yeah. But they're, they're all very happy. They have been very independent. A couple of them are atheists now, I think. Uh, we have good relationships. We have no problems at all. Uh, at all, everything. My, my girls recently stopped wearing the scarf. Okay. Yeah. We went to, I put their photos up on Facebook. And I don't care what Muslims might say to me. You know, if you don't, if you if you can't accept me for who I am, what I've become, then fine. I don't. You're not my friend, so it's not nice. You lose a lot of people, of course, but the ones that remain with you are better. I can imagine that you've had to let go of a lot of relationships oh, yes, yes. over the over the years. Hundreds, yes, thousands. Well, that's fine. Wow, I could talk to you forever. You. Honestly, there's a, so many things that I could still ask. Is there any last thing that you would want to say? No, God to... bless you, Jazz, and you know, you're a good human being. And I'm very, very grateful yeah. for you sharing this story. Uh, I hope I've been useful and something positive will come out of it. Manuel, that was really wonderful. Thank you very much. Manuel's story highlighted to me that we are all a product of our circumstance, right? Our circumstances can lead us down one path, but Manoir's inner strength, intuition and humanity cut through his conditioning and showed him a new path. We might not all relate to Manoir's series of circumstances or the decisions that he made, but we can all relate to experiencing pain. If we think back to a time when we were really in pain, really hurting or at our lowest, in those darkest hours or days, we may have acted in ways that we're not proud of. But coming out the other side of that is truly remarkable. This was the last episode of Season 3 of the Worldwide Tribe podcast. I'd love to know your thoughts and what you'd like to hear more of in Season 4. To let me know, send me a direct message on Instagram at the Worldwide Tribe. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it, rate it and leave it a review. It helps more people to find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe.
big thanks to Alexander Wells for composing our original music and mixing this episode.